This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. History isn't just a bunch of names and dates and facts. It's the collection of all the stories throughout human history that explain how and why we got here. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, where we look at the forgotten, neglected, strange, and even counterfactual stories that made our world what it is. I'm your host, Scott Rank. One of the most influential books of the 20th century was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. This is a 1946 book in which the author, who was a prisoner in a Nazi concentration camp, described his psychological method of being able to survive and hold on to some sliver of hope in probably the worst circumstance anyone could imagine. He involved identifying a purpose in life to feel positive about and then imagine that happening. And he argued that whether a prisoner lived or died largely depended on whether they thought that they would survive or had anything to live for. There's good reason to think Frankel is correct, because we have many stories of others who, who due to their optimism, their hope, were able to go through hell and back. Today's episode, we're going to look at the story of Harold Frank. He was a World War II rifleman who was part of the D-Day invasion. He fought Germans. He endured a grueling stint in a German POW camp in Dresden, where thousands of tons of bombs were dropped on the city and also incendiaries. He went on a four-day-long death march when the Nazis were trying to escape the Red Army, and how he spent years and decades after the war trying to rebuild his life and battle all the psychological damage that he went through and the PTSD. I'm joined by Mark Hager, who's the author of the book The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II Story of Faith and Courage. We look at Frank's journey as a child of the Great Depression and how most of his food came from whatever he could shoot, to the bloody shores of the D-Day invasion, and into the bowels of Nazi Germany, and back to the U.S. It's a story of suffering, determination, and what are the things that people hold on to to make it through the biggest challenges that life could possibly throw at you. Hope you enjoy this discussion with Mark Hager. Harold Frank is a central character in your book, but he fought in World War II with his Browning automatic rifle, and it was basically an extension of him, but practically a third arm because it was always at his side. 
Can you describe to me this weapon, what was special about it? And then also, what did it mean to be an expert rifleman like Frank? How good were you compared to your peers? What could you accomplish? Could you explain that? Yes, I can. Uh, the Browning automatic rifle for any U.S. infantry squad, that was the only, was the only automatic machine gun per infantry, infantry squad in the Army during World War II. And it could fire well over 200 rounds a minute and was heavily relied upon. And for Harold, he excelled in firearms largely because of his upbringing in rural North Carolina and Davidson County during the Great Depression, in which he was infatuated with how things operate and how things work. And his favorite uncle schooled him to make sure that before you ever fire a firearm, make sure you can take it apart and put it together. And when he saw the BAR in basic training at Camp Shelby, he his eyes just just glued onto it. And, you know, it was more like, I want to take that apart. I want to see what makes it operate. 200 rounds. It was, it was phenomenal what that weapon could do for a guy growing up in North Carolina back then, who was already an excellent shot with firearms that he was raised with. But for Harold, he, you know, he's snapped at the ability to, or the chance to be able to get that weapon. And when his platoon sergeant introduced it in basic training towards the end of it, he jumped right into it. And before anybody else could say anything and yelled out that he wanted to do it, he wanted the weapon sergeant. And then it was handed to him. And then, of course, that was the laughter at that point in the Army. It's always referred to as the as the badass rifle instead of the Browning automatic rifle. And he immediately went to learning how it operated from one end of the barrel all the way down and to take it apart and put it together to where he could do it blindfolded. And that only excelled him in basic training to where they recognize his ability with it. It's shooting even at you know pretty far distances beyond two, 300 plus meters with it. And they actually attempted to get him to stay at Camp Shelby to help train others with the Browning automatic rifle. But he refused because that was not what he got himself in the army to do. He went to go win the war, not not to um, just train others. And so it was because of his ability that him and about, I don't know, six or seven other BAR men from the 271st Infantry were handpicked and pulled from training at Camp Shelby. They didn't know it, but they were given a weekend pass. And then when they came back in on Monday morning, they were sent up to New York to prepare for heading to England to get ready for the Normandy invasion. One other bit of context for what a BAR rifleman did. There are different standard issue weapons, the M1 Garand, the yes. earlier in the war, the Springfield Dot Six, the think of the bolt action rifle. Mm-hmm. Having a automatic weapon that's very different than a bolt action weapon. So what function typically would a BAR rifleman perform? Well suppressing fire if you generally on a patrol as they move forward, if they run into as so common that like the German MG forty two, which by far was was better than the BAR, could fire much faster, much faster rate of fire. But his job was to return fire and keep the opponents pinned down or to eliminate them, to kill them or or, or whatever while the infantry moves up. And then of course in that infantry squad you would have that BAR man and then 
he would have an assistant gunner. His name was Paul Esworthy that you'll read a lot in the book. They became very close. And then you'll have your M1 Garands that were involved in the bolt action was usually a Springfield bolt action was usually was outfitted to where it was a grenade launcher. And they worked as a team um, to when they came up to a target or a machine gun nest, the BAR man would lay down the, the covering fire. The infantry then would be allowed while, while the BAR man was in operation to try to maneuver to a better location. And then that would allow the, the guy that's going to be firing the grenade launcher out of the Springfield to be able to be, to move up to where they would all work as a, as a team and to eliminate each target one after the other. Of course, they would shoot, move, and communicate, as as we refer to it in the Army. And that BAR man was always up towards the front. And the assistant gunner, he could be just about anywhere, depending on what the target, what the, what the squad leader, the most important person in that squad, the squad leader is the guy that's going to be directing and, and moving you from point to point. One in particular saved Harold's life on the on the very first day of action when he came in at Normandy, and so the BAR man is is skilled at being able to look at at all parts of that battlefield, see the spot where he can put down the most covering fire, or to eliminate the machine gun nest to allow the infantry to to move up to close in quickly to eliminate the target. We'll definitely talk more about his exploits, but let's look at Harold's background. Could you describe his early life, recruitment, and then everything leading up to and including storming the shores of Utah Beach? Harold's, Harold is an interesting personality. Uh, when I met him, I was one stunned that he was alive. <laughs> well, being, you know, that time when I first met him, he was 96. But uh, two was that the 357th Infantry, which was part of the 90th Infantry Division, had been overrun several times during the Normandy campaign. And I was, uh, how he survived that was, I was mesmerized by that one and trying to figure out how he could do so well under pressure and survive. And when you look at him today and still doing remarkably well, I had to back up as a writer and start looking back at his, his past. And, and really, it starts in the Great Depression. He was born in 1924. And the farming community, especially the cotton world that they had to uh, work within, the depressions actually started before 1929. And I singled in on a period when he was six years old and where he was awakened and out of a quilt that was mostly a burlap sack with some actual fabric on the facing of it. So his dad said, I need your help. And then at six years of age, before daylight, there was no complaining. He got up and then they immediately set to try to build their home and move out of the the really shanty thing that you would call a house that he was in at that time. And what he had to do at six years of age, most boys today couldn't comprehend the the work and that and that he did it without quarreling, without there was there was no time for that. This was survivability within within that family and the chores that he had to do quickly. And then not only that, the items that he was going to be operating on that farm, he needed to learn how to use them quickly, be able to learn to fix them. And if needs be to go inside their own blacksmith shop and then help try to 
implement them the best or replicate parts that, that broke down. And uh, his uncle, his name was RP, that you'll read about in the book, he considered to be his best friend and closest friend and, and taught him just about everything. And he was a um, fixer in the textile industry and could uh, work on and fix about everything, including their first automobile, the Model T Ford that the family had. And Harold learned from him the importance of operating equipment and then to keep it functioning. And his uncle would say, if you learn the equipment, it will keep you alive. It'll keep you safe. If you don't learn the equipment, then it'll be, it can be used against you and you'll fail. And so whether it was the tractor that they were using at the sawmill or the horse teams that he had to put together on the farm. And then when he, when RP and his dad tried to train him to hunt when he was between six to nine years of age, that's how everything started was to learn how it operates, what the pressure is that's, that's going to be exerted from around as it fires through the barrel. He was very interested in that and that helped him to understand the weapon. And then the animal teams, Growing up in North Carolina, they hunted whatever they could from possum to quail to you name it and to learn to work as a, as a group and not to just randomly shoot. They, he was trained to become a marksman because they just don't have the money to be putting on other ammunition. So when they would bird hunt, they would make sure one, you had the dogs are correct and they're trained right. And then the shotgun, when you use it, you always waited until when the covey flushed that you could get two birds crossing at the same time and then shoot so you could get two birds with one shot because when the covey goes out, the dogs will, will find the singles afterwards. So there's no use of, of just trying to shoot as many as you can and waste that am, ammunition. So he, he learned that as a, as a child and carried all the way through his, to his teenage years. And the interesting thing to me was, boy, wait till he actually does get into combat, how effective he would be. And that's how I kind of looked at Harold's secret was by that upbringing that so many people, not just Harold, but many people in the United States, 16 million men would, would go into combat. And that's that generation um, for Harold, basic training just taught him what it was like to be in the army. The basic training already happened when he was six years old. Right. It sounds like his childhood was ready made to be successful as a soldier. Yes. Being very careful and thorough with your shot, respecting the machines around you and the tools around you. Treat them right. They'll treat you right. Incredible resilience, everything else that he would need. Tell me about D-Day. What was it like when he was part of that and he's part of the invasion? D-Day is perhaps the most complicated part of Harold's story. And the reason, um, you know, I go back to my old service is that, you know, when you go to basic training, you learn the names of everybody around you, and then you go through your advanced individual or advanced infantry training afterwards. It's normally the same people. For Harold, it was the 69th Infantry Division that he had been reactivated uh, for World War II that he was in training with at Camp Shelby. And he knew everybody. He knew from the captain all the way down to the individual soldiers around him, etc., but what makes Normandy confusing for him is his ability with the BAR. He was picked and pulled from the 271st, along with a few others, 
and then sent up to Camp Shanks. And then eventually he is over in England and they are training for the what they didn't know, but was the D-Day landings. But he didn't know anybody. And he was assigned to the 357th Infantry. And when he lands, when the troop ship lands him onto Utah Beach, the 90th Division received its CIB, or Combat Infantry Badge, on June the 10th. That's D-Day plus four. That was another thing you had to realize about when you think of D-Day itself. So Harold comes in after the 357th and the 358th and 359th Infantry Regiments of the 90th Division land on the beach. Now, he doesn't know which company he's going to be with because at that point you're a replacement and waiting for when you're summoned up after another BAR man or whoever is is killed or wounded, which didn't take very long. So the 90th Division, when they came in, some of them came in on June the 6th. Harold was not in that bunch on June the 6th because, again, he's, a re- he's being hailed for that point. And their job was to, as the 4th Infantry Division that landed on D-Day, push us forward to secure a couple of miles of the beachhead. Then the 90th would come in, and its major push was to cut quickly all the way across the Cote de Peninsula and block any German attempts to get out of Cherbourg or any German attempts to try to reinforce Cherbourg, the only deep water port that they could not take on, on D-Day, of course. And so Harold, when he arrives, the battle on a map, when you look at the Cote de Peninsula, you have the Lafayre Causeway and then Gorbeville. And there's a couple little hamlets around Gorbeville that became famous in movies such as Saving Private Ryan and others, Amphreville and et cetera. But the 82nd Airborne Division had dropped. And as we already know, so many misdrops, et cetera. But they did rally and, and tried their best to hold the Lafayre Causeway, the bridge over the Meredith Bridge, the bridge over the Meredith River. And they were trying to hold it for four days and lost an enormous amount of manpower trying to hold it. And in desperation, they were about to lose it when the 90th Division arrives. And it was after that point that Harold is thrust up at the rally point outside of the Lafayre Causeway. And Harold is put right into battle, but he did not know the names of the men that he was with because they're in the 357. The first sergeant, I mean, sergeant that was there recognized the BAR and, and asked Harold if he could shoot. And of course, he said, you know, in lots of words, he said, well, hell yeah, I can shoot. I'm best in the 271st. And so immediately goes into action. And that's where he gets his bronze star was from a patrol that evening trying to make contact with elements around Gorbeville. And uh, but that's the confusing part for Harold's story is that in infantry tactics, once they land, those that were combat veterans, they wouldn't wear their their actual rank on their uniforms sometimes even their patches sometimes, because that would be uh, prone to German snipers. So Harold had a hard time trying to learn who was what, and the casualties, the 357th suffered about 115% casualties from the time period around the Battle of Gorbeville. So by the time it's over with, even replacements are the veterans. So imagine yourself in that. You're now leading patrols, but you don't know all the people's names around you. And the units and battlefield tactics, even though you may be in the 357th, you may suddenly find yourself 
around survivors of the 358, 359th, and then and then at the LaFerre Causeway, and then on. They're also mixed in with the 82nd Airborne. It sounds completely chaotic. It's amazing that they were able to hold it together as well as they did. It was, and we're only talking 17 miles from the coast. Well, 17 miles from the coast, by the time the Normandy campaign is over, one American is wounded every about five meters, and one is killed about every 10 meters. And so it, and it takes from June the 6th, you know, initially D-Day. Um, most of the fighting occurs not on D-Day, but in the days just after D-Day, as the German reserves are, are pushed forward to try to hurl everybody back to the beachhead. So the combat that they're having to go through would be remembered in military history as, as it was the greatest loss of life in a single event with the 90th Division. And we're only talking about moving 17 to 20 miles. And it took until the end of July before they finally secured Normandy. Can you describe more what he did to earn his Bronze Star? Well, Harold is a, when you talk with him, he doesn't, you know, put it that he did anything amazingly different than all the others. He just did his job. But as he knew as a BAR rifleman, he knew his position within the squad and knew the importance of trying to keep everybody alive and trying to find the targets as quick as possible and move as they moved up towards Gorbeville, immediately coming out of a crater that was hit by, you know, from battleship bombardments earlier on D-Day. Then he noticed the German machine gun nest at, at dark. It was not quite dark, but it was close. It was close. And the sergeant, you know, looked at him, pointed, and then he immediately got into a position where he could fire at the target and then eliminated everybody within that machine gun nest and then was turning and then was starting to bring down another machine gun nest when the sergeant ordered Harold to move and he was confused by it. And then he started cussing Harold out and Paul Esworthy. So he grabbed Esworthy by back of his uniform and they got out of that crater and moved, you know, maybe 30 yards and then fell into another one when a German 88 shell came in and hit that crater that they were in. So the sergeant had, had saved his life, but then he realized that German Ford observers were homing in, you know, if they, if they could indicate any BAR man or other machine gunner, then they already had the grounds already zeroed in for artillery and mortar fire. And so he learned that he had to shoot, move, and communicate quickly, and then uh, try to go back and forth between. He, he grabbed an M1 Garand, and, you know, when he didn't need the BAR, he would go back and forth between it. So you know, that way he felt that the enemy may be confused as to who had the BAR or where the BAR was. And then he was switched back and forth. And then he worked on the trigger mechanism, which he could he could do blindfolded quickly and home it down to where it could fire even faster rounds and then switch. And that's generally it was that time period from there up through Gorbeville in which he was then later remembered and awarded the Bronze Star. Of course, he gets the Purple Heart after the Battle of Boucadre. About a month later. Scott here. We're going to take a very short break for a word from our sponsors. But first, I want to give a shout out to all the other great shows on the Parthenon Podcast Network, including Beyond the Big Screen. And you can find this and many other great shows at ParthenonPodcast.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A big part of his story is his capture, but could you uh, describe other events that happen in combat and as he's part of this campaign up to and including his capture? Well, the best way to, um, to understand, um, I met a sergeant major. He's now retired from the 82nd Airborne and I was always amazed at how young he looked being a sergeant major from when I was in the service. But he said one thing that people need to remember about all of the individuals like Harold that came in from Normandy is that when they went into combat, they did not go back to barracks at the end of the day or a week later or two weeks later or a month later. You literally trace them across Europe, foxhole to foxhole. And the conditions would be tremendous. They were wearing both summer and winter uniforms together, not knowing which one they're going to need. And that with all the equipment that you got to carry along with it, and then having to dig every time that you move forward, it didn't matter how far, you instantly would try to dig in, whether it was feet or, or a mile or so. And so at night, you they became dependent upon each other with, with sleeping and staying on duty and then interchangeably he would volunteer to to go out on night patrols using his experience as a BAR rifleman which eventually led to his uh, his capture because at the following the battle of Bucadre or as it was really starting to intensify that was around June July the 5th 6th he was actually supposed to be back in the rear area finally he he got a hot shower change of uniforms and he actually met again some of those men in the 82nd Airborne that he saw from the LaFerre Causeway and got a hot meal. He got time to write a couple of letters. And then a sergeant came up and said, we need you to go back. I&L Company of the 357th Infantry, they had lost contact with it, possibly overrun. But there was one NCO that survived it, survived that uh, particular attack and was going to try to lead a patrol to see if they could contact or find any of them. And so Harold was selected as the last experienced BAR rifleman right there with them. And so instead of resting, you know, they went right back. He had just captured 17 Germans at a railroad cut 
just before hitting the showers. And so there's not a whole lot of time of rest that he was looking forward to. But they go out on this night patrol, and as they cross over a hardtop near the Laplesius Church at Bucadre, they didn't know it, but the German 15th Parachute Regiment was a spear point of a large counteroffensive to throw everybody back into uh, Utah and Omaha beaches. And he gets caught behind enemy lines leading this patrol, and it's him and his assistant gunner he lost contact with. And ironically, they that group fell back and made it. Harold was on the wrong side of the road at that point and ends up being cut off by German movements past them and ends up fighting a nine-hour battle with three other guys. And they do make contact with a couple of survivors of INL Company. And they fight it out for nine hours. He gets shot in the shoulder about an hour into the conflict and continues to fight the remaining eight hours till they're out of ammo. One guy was was in either IRL company, he, he didn't remember, had been hit in the leg and it fractured his leg so he couldn't walk. So he tries to help get him out of the foxhole and the flooded causeway the Germans were so famous for in the Normandy Peninsula, tries to get him out and move in the direction where he thinks the American lines are. And as they climb up on a bank, a German is there with an MP40 machine gun from that parachute infantry regiment and captures them. He immediately throws the trigger mechanism of his BAR, quickly pulls it out and throws it into the, the swamp so they can't use it. But that's how he gets captured. And the guy that had the fractured leg, which he didn't know his name, um, they executed him because he couldn't walk and he didn't really recognize Harold's wound. And that began his, his capture. And he sums it up well when he says, when he looks at a couple of other guys that were captured, he says, now we're going to see what tough really is. That's definitely for sure. And to take a step back and look at the big picture, I'd like to look at the experiences that he had in this Nazi POW concentration camp. But then also more broadly speaking, how was it for most American soldiers in such a camp? Because there's very different experiences in POW camps. Nobody obviously has a good time. But for really anyone in an allied camp, for Germans or Japanese, it's perhaps the best you could hope for. From what I've read, Americans in German POW camps fare somewhat well, and that's a very relative term. But then really anyone in an Axis camp is, uh, it's a race to the bottom. Whether you're in a Japanese POW camp or you're a German in, if you're a Russian in a German camp, it's terrible. But conversely, if you're a German in a Russian camp, it's really tit for tat. So what was the experience in general for Americans and what was Harold's in particular? Harold, there are several things within the book that I think the readers, well, I, I know with Regnery Publishing that they called on pretty quick, too, that he has vivid account of what it was like to be not only captured, but then what they do to you following the capture before you ever get to the POW camp and how you're paraded through cities like Paris and the Germans orchestrate and have people there that are throwing items at you, spitting on you. It's, it's another whole point of the French experience that I think was that was kind of unique. And then just to make it to the well, where he was going to go was up near Dresden at Stalag 4B. And what they did to these guys on, on the trains, deliberately to get them set up to be killed by our own fighters. That's one that 
the readers of this book are, are really going to be amazed at the cruelty that happens and what they had to do as soldiers if they survived, say, a P-38 attack on the rail yard. And, and they knew when the planes were coming in, so that's when they deliberately put them on the cars. And then after the attack was over with, then they would go out and, and get them out of the cars and, well, and then all of the dead and wounded from it. And then the treatment that they were given, you know, you're looking at in the middle of summer when he's captured, packed into these cars, which we know infamously as, as moving Jews to Holocaust camps all over, all over Europe, but very tight conditions, very little there's no real ventilation in, inside of them, and people succumb to that. And so th- that whole ordeal is bad enough to really, um, I think, have the reader come across, I did not realize what the Germans were deliberately doing to these guys as they were captured. But then when they get to the Stalags, Harold, you know, he is whatever you call it, luck or whatever, he is sent to Dresden, which, you know, most people would realize, well, wait a minute, that was where the thousand plane firebombing took place in World War II, and he's going to survive that. But when he gets into these Stalags, the first one, the conditions were terrible. They were all ate up with lice inside of it, very bad water, and the food was more of a porridge type, and he would, you know, hear people, you know, each night, you know, saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I can't make it. And he said, once, you know, people start thinking that way, well, they did. And he would think to himself, his one goal is that I'm going back home to my mom and dad. I'm going to make it back and, and, and kept that. And he had his Bible that his mom had uh, given him as he went in the army. And he would take it out and, and read it. And it's an interesting parallel with Harold that he claims that he could feel his mama's prayers. In fact, it, it was called on by some of the men that was with him in combat. And then later on, that he would suddenly wake up kind of in a nightmare. And, you know, at one point, one of them said, was your mama praying again? He said, yes. And normally some event would happen. It's just uh, one of those uh, eerie parts of his of his story. But he realized that he had to do something. He's going to die in that in, in Stalag 4B just simply because if the war doesn't end quickly, they're losing weight so rapidly that a German soldier came in with a paper and was asking for volunteers for a work detail. And him, a couple other boys that were from the South, were just looking, Harold raised his hand to volunteer. And then so three others did. So a team of four of them did, and they moved them from Stalag 4B to Klotschy Airfield which is out just still right there at Dresden. It was a Messerschmitt airfield where they went in. It was still much the same, but I've always, uh, I don't, I don't say I, I like Harold's view of this, or I, I think it's interesting. Harold's point of view was that said he had to get better food and the food was better, but that better food there in return for being in a work camp, uh, 107 men each month got the neck and head of a horse that was thrown over the wire to them once a month. And then they had one person as a cook and they ate every bit of it. And then the rest of the food was the same as being in Stalag 4B, the porridge type food, whether it was from turnips or, or whatever it was, they would have that. And Harold had to learn and improvise 
and was told that they would be killed immediately if they tried to steal any food and such, but he did anyway. And so he learned to to try to evade them as much as possible to get what little he can. And that's when his skills in the Great Depression at six years of age, he manages to make a slingshot without the German guards knowing. And and that and the and those four teamed together and created a a kind of a squad on locating and killing uh, German hares or German rabbits whenever they could and evade it from the guards and then get back into the camp. And then at night, uh, tear it apart and, and eat every bit of it that they could. And, and they would get so things like that and some other things that you'll find in the book. He was able to remember from his child, you know, childhood during the Great Depression because they didn't have much food in the Great Depression, despite being on the farm. They, so Harold, they learned to to hunt and kill about everything, eat whatever birds, squirrels, what, whatever the, the item was with limited amount of resources. And he brings that all back into that work camp. And so he survives a thousand plane bombing, which he still wakes up on the anniversary of that, I think, what, every, in February every year on the night of it, he still wakes up in a sweat remembering that attack and then survived a actual uh, attack in April of 1945 on that airfield in which by that time Dresden is obliterated, the airfield's gone, and they are forced on their own smaller version of a baton death march in which they walk from Friday till from, from a Friday all the way through to Tuesday without rest, without sleep, without food. And many didn't make that march, but they were trying to escape one, the damage done at Dresden, and two, the Russian army that he didn't want to be captured by the Russian army either that was heading towards that area and ends up towards Czechoslovakia, has one escape attempt in which he, he tries to get to the American lines and was recaptured five days later, and then they brought him right back to where he was, and then a few days later, the war ends, and the German guards let him go, and he... Um, meets up with elements of General Patton's 3rd Army. Hey everyone, Scott here. One more brief word from our sponsors. We all know that hard times create hard men, hard men create good times, good times create soft men, soft men create hard times. That's how the cycle of history works, right? Well, as guest Dan Carlin explains, that's not exactly the case. You had mentioned, you know, what we had talked about with Kennedy being elected because, you know, who did better at the debate or who's going to lower my taxes or all these banal things two years before 100 million plus people are killed in a thermonuclear war, right? Did you elect the right guy then? To listen to more of this History Unplugged interview with Dan Carlin about why the end is always near, search for History Unplugged on the podcast player of your choice. Are you a man who thinks about the Roman Empire at least once a day? According to a recent internet meme, you definitely do. And why shouldn't you? Here's a clip from Tom Holland talking about Rome at the very height of its power. When tourists go to the Colosseum, they're not really going there. I suspect most of them, because they're admirers of Flavian architecture, I suspect that they're going there because it's the kind of the shiver that you get of going to a place where blood sports have happened. To listen to more of this discussion, check out the History Unplugged podcast on the podcast player of your choice. 
One of the best works of art about World War I isn't Johnny Got His Gun or 1917, but the Swedish heavy metal band Sabaton's album, The Great War. Here's lead singer Joachim Bronner. From a more general point of view, I feel like our music, from the emotional spectrum, I guess, that's in our music, it's pretty emotionally close to what you'd find on the battlefield or in history. There is obviously the aggression, sometimes a sense of joy and pride, sometimes depression, and all these things. You can listen to our full interview on the History Employed podcast, and you can find it on the podcast player of your choice. That is incredible because probably the hardest position you could be in in the war is just about where he was. Uh, <laughs> if there's a place to be caught between the anvil and the hammer, because you're in Dresden, which you mentioned, I mean, the thousand some bombers overhead. I think there's about 4,000 tons of explosives. And it's not just bombs. It's, all, it's incendiary devices. It's firebombing to try to completely obliterate Germany's industry at the end of the war. So there's not just explosions, there's fires going around. Many people died from asphyxiation because the oxygen is sucked out of areas. It's for those who describe the firebombing in Dresden or in Tokyo, it's hellish in a way that even typical bombing isn't. And then, like you said, he's on a death march, just absolute incredible survivability. It sounds like the he had the mindset of Viktor Frankl and man's search for meaning to find some sort of hope to hold on to to keep going. What is it like for him once he is finds freedom, he gets onto the American side? What happens then? It's a it's a slow he learned one thing that was his advantage after he was recaptured by Patton's army. He was fluid in German by that time, being in a Nazi POW camp. Um, his last name's Frank. So I mean he comes from he would claim, you know, I have a German ancestry. It was back in the seventeen hundreds here in North Carolina. But instead of getting got tired of being hit in the head with the stock of a gun or or poked a quarter inch or so to be awakened by Germans that were yelling for them to get up inside the POW camp. And so he started listening to them closely and picked up on German relatively quick. And as soon as he was captured, they immediately, you know, starving like they were. They didn't realize what they were doing by feeding them beans and all kinds of stuff that they were immediately uh, sick and throwing up and medics had to come in and, and, and tell them you can't do that to them after what they've been through. He had lost close to 100 pounds and he was 212 pounds when he landed at Utah Beach and he lost about 100 pounds by the time he was recaptured. And it takes in all when he get when he returns home, it, it's a good 10 years before he could eat like we would think, you know, a full meal without without immediately throwing it back up. And it worried his mom, everybody around him. And, you know, at one point his mom is worried that it's her food. And he was trying to say it's not. She was one of the best cooks around. He would let her know, but it's it's what they did to us. And it was really, he, he goes to Memphis and the army then goes to work on the POWs. And, you know, they're, they basically are fed about six or seven meals per day, but only about the size of the palm of your hand, not the whole hand at a time that kind of works somewhat. And there's interesting stories along with that, especially when the guys from the Pacific Theater start coming in that are also POWs that were in Japanese POW camps. And as bad as it was with the Nazis, he would he would be the first one to say that what he witnessed of those that were coming back from the Pacific, you know, he he has 
you know, he, he hasn't forgiven Japan for what they did to those guys when he's there. But really, his the recovery coming back home was um, about three years, not quite three years after coming home and going back and forth to Memphis. You know, he met Reba, which became his wife of 68 years, and she saved his life. And um, and he'll be first first to tell you that, that continue to to work on him with this eating and getting his priorities straight, et cetera, to where he owes uh, much to her in his faith in God that uh, he was able to turn things around because it, it was, it was, it was a very tough transition back from what he went through. And you, you got to realize he went into combat in 1944 and he's home in 45 after being both, through the Normandy campaign and a Nazi POW for 10 months. And then suddenly he's knocking on the door at his, at his home in, in, uh, in Davidson County. It's a, uh, it's very surreal what, what that man went through in a very short amount of time. And it takes many, many, many years as it does many combat veterans, but particularly for Harold. And he didn't go to the bottle Things of, of that nature that we think of with PTS and such. His, it was work. He, he put his mind on work and he, um, he was working at RJ Reynolds full time, volunteered and was a special deputy with the sheriff's office for 20, about 27 years, became the first fire chief of the first fire department in his community. Then he had a small, his farm that he, uh, that he had purchased and was working and was working on, and I started adding it up. I said, well, Harold, you're not doing anything but really just sleeping. <laughs> and so he that's how he coped, was he put his mind to work. And so the more he worked, the, I guess the more his mind kept out of the war and that when his wife wanted to know more about it, he you know refused to tell her. And she kept telling him you know, over and over that one day he needs to tell his story. And he just gets emotional and said he he really didn't want her to know exactly. And his own parents, you know, they knew he was captured and they knew that life was bad, but he didn't go into great detail about just how bad it was. And then um, towards the end of his wife's life, that was when she she said that one day, you know, tell a story. And I happened to meet him by accident three months after his wife's passing. And that's how. It all came together for the book 75 years afterwards. Many soldiers went through horrific things in World War II, to not speak of other wars, and some weren't able to continue in maybe POW camps. They lost hope. Mm -hmm. After the war is over, everyone is trying to rebuild their lives. Some can't. Some turn to alcoholism. Some turn to depression. It they don't know how to move forward. And right. Harold definitely had his wounds, but he was able to move forward. Uh, so that's something that you credited for a number of things. But overall, what would you say for readers looking at his story? What takeaway do you hope that they get from his story? That there's always hope. There's, there's a way to get through no matter how bad the circumstance is, that you can dig deep inside yourself and pull yourself out of this. But in Harold's story, that's that's well there's there's kind of you got the combat part but the way i i approached this book is that his secret to how he survives was his upbringing and the importance of family in very harsh times in the great depression and 
and that I think people need to really sink in and, and think a bit about their circumstances today when they look at Harold's circumstances growing up before the bad really hits him, which Great Depression is bad enough. And then the second part is that, you know, your, your faith in each other as, as human beings, the quality of life. Uh, when he returns home, you know, there, there's no get out of the part about being pitied and things of that nature and try to be productive and then use those same characteristics. Get back into the family as quick as you can. Get, get, your, get your faith in order. It doesn't mean you're perfect in any way. As I think people reading the Harold Frank story, whether they're combat veterans from Afghanistan, Iraq, Korea, Vietnam, or any host of events in between, or people who have faced traumatic issues here at home, regardless of being in the military, I think when they, when they look into Harold, I think by the time they finish, that they'll see that there is hope and that I can do this and that there's got to be someone else there that you can talk to and to try to find that person. And I think that is one of the the big glimmers of hope that the book also gives. If you can, if Harold can survive what he went through, then, you know, in essence, and I can too. Well, there's a lot more to the story. And for listeners who want to read about it, the name of your book is The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II Story of Faith and Courage. Mark, thank you for joining us. All right. That is all for today. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode and all my other episodes, go to parthenonpodcast.com. That's the name of the podcast network that this show is a part of, along with other great history shows like Steve Guerra's Beyond the Big Screen and History of the Papacy. James Early's Key Battles of American History, and other shows as well. If you'd like to support this show, there are two easy ways to do so. The first is to subscribe to History Unplugged on the podcast player of your choice and leave a review. The second thing is to join the show's membership program. It's on Patreon, and if you go to patreon.com unplugged and join it, as a member, you'll get completely ad-free episodes of the show's entire back catalog, which is 600 episodes and growing. Just go to patreon.com unplugged. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.